welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you take care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz. I am your host. I am a fellow dad. I am the Stan Lee cameo in your weekly life. My son will periodically tell me that he wants to do different things as a career. I mean, he's sick, so we... we we're not too invested in it. But he likes the idea of designing video games, for example. Definitely playing them. He's talked about being an athlete. From time to time, he'll bring up what I do and express an interest in that. I figure that it's up to him to decide what he likes doing, and it's up to me to help him figure out how to be great at that. Time will tell if this is a practical idea, let alone a good one. I'll keep you posted. I can tell you that one of the things I think about a lot is how different the image of doing something professionally is compared to the reality. The paradox of entrepreneurship is that, hey, you know that thing you like, that you really love doing? You're going to be doing way less of that. I mean, I opened up a gym because the consensus was, hey, you really seem to have a knack for coaching and understanding strength training. And I really enjoyed it. It seemed logical. So I opened my space in 2008 and you want to guess what I immediately started doing way less of? There's a classic on entrepreneurship by Michael Gerber called The E-Myth, The Entrepreneurial Myth. I don't remember a ton of the book, to be honest. It's been a long time since I read it. But the one thing that really stuck with me was this idea of asking, are you a dyed-in-the-wool entrepreneur or are you a technician? Right? A technician might be a brilliant baker or mechanic, right? a, a, a creator of some kind. And people will, will look at this person and say, wow, you're so amazing at baking cakes or fixing cars. You ought to open up a place. And the question you know, the author here wants to ask you in that moment is, are you really an entrepreneur or are you a technician having an entrepreneurial moment? Right? Because you know, the dream is there perhaps of working on your passion, your true talent. However, there's a superstructure there of deeply unsexy work. A lot of technicians are just not juiced to do the finances or the marketing or really anything other than the work as they envision it. Even the career path may not be as advertised. That was definitely the case for my guest on today's episode, and that is Morgan Campbell. Morgan is a career journalist. His beat has traditionally been sports and the business of sport. He wrote full-time for the Toronto Star for 15 years, and he has a book coming out sometime next year, and we'll talk about that. He writes for New York Times Sports, and he is on camera for Bring It In with CBC Sports. And that's good because Morgan is really engaging. And I just figured the more of him out in the world, the better. So I wanted to talk to Morgan about both the trajectory of his career and the process of writing your first book to go beyond the idea and the raw talent and actually get the damn thing done. Before we get started, if you are a dad with ADHD and you're interested in an in-person workshop to explore and develop your unique strengths, drop me a line at jeff at dadstrength.com. That's G-E-O-F-F at dadstrength.com. Hey, it's just how it's spelled. We'll have a chat. I'll learn about you and I'll fill you in on upcoming workshops and other opportunities. All right. I want to get into my interview with Morgan Campbell. So I kick things off with him by asking about that gap between talent and vocation. 
It's going to be like, oh, yeah, do what you love. Oh, if you really love it, make it, you know, into a business. <laughs> Except the business aspects are so far removed from the stuff I actually love doing. Like, they have nothing to do with each other. It's like, no matter what you love, if you want to make a business of it, you either got to learn to like accounting or find some good accountants. In my past life as a as a you know daily newspaper reporter and people would be like oh you're sharp you should become an editor and i'd be like as an editor in a newspaper like 90 percent of what i do is dealing with schedules and budgets and that what in the skill set i've shown you has told you that i would either want to or be good at scheduling and budgets it's a really fair question. And just because you're good at one job does not, by any stretch of the imagination, mean that you should be promoted into the next tier if it takes you away from your unique strengths. And I know a few people who have actually been in positions to say no to being in a uh, C-suite role where they continue to just kind of work in the business. And I think it's a good option. If you can wrangle it, for most people, Morgan included, they've just got to get this stuff done no matter what. Now, since Morgan's career has had some interesting twists over the last several years, I wanted him to give me a background and just kind of bring me up to speed on his whole career journey. To learn more, I asked him what is, in retrospect, a pretty broad question. He let me know what he thought about that. That's half my life. Give me... You got to put some borders around that question. That's a broad-ass question. Harsh, but fair. He's right. It was a broad-ass question. I can do better. I'm learning this stuff as I go. So I decided to zoom in on Morgan's current professional life. The route to where I am right now, which is like in my mid-40s, working on a book, and then for the most part, being in charge of my own career, uh, it's where... I, I would have told you if you'd asked me 23 years ago that I would be, but the route there was a lot different than I envisioned. But I'm where I thought I would be, so <laughs> for better or for worse. It's for better. Definitely it's for better. So at this point, I, choosing my words very carefully, get him to take me back to working for the Toronto Star. So in 2011, you know, I was in the sports department at the Star. I was in the newspaper industry, like, if you are the person that covers the major league baseball team in your city, like that's a big job because they pay you what they pay you, but they also have to spend a lot on you because there's a lot of travel. So they tend not to give those jobs to people they don't like or to people that aren't politically connected or whatever. Right. I mean, but despite being <laughs> not super popular with the big bosses and not, uh, not someone like that was super politically connected within the company, I still managed to get that job because I managed to make the thing about merit and I knew I was good enough. And a job like that is usually a job, if you're at the Star or even like the Washington Post or the New York Times, is like after a couple of years covering the baseball beat, you either decide that you just love baseball so much you're going to be a baseball like lifer and that's what you're going to do, which is one way to go. Or like you use that as a catapult into like the next phase of your career if you want to be a full-time features writer, investigations, whatever. But for me, I didn't really get that chance because after my second year, we got a new boss who, if we fast forward a few years, he wound up getting fired from the company for being like incompetent and corrupt. 
which anyone who interacted with him could have told you was going to happen. The man Morgan is referring to is John Filson, and oof, this goes deep. He was a senior manager. He had been involved in an extramarital relationship with one of his reporters. They were both married at the time. Their breakup and her heartbreak uh, resulted in her suicide. Filson was also involved in another affair with his own boss. And the toxic culture at Torstar at the time is also considered to have been a major factor in all of this. This is heavy and messy. And you get a sense of the environment Morgan was working in. He became my boss and the first thing he did was demote me. And he and I never got along. So I'll to say this, August of 2011, they finally they just kicked me out of the department. They sent me to business with, with, with no warning and no consultation, nothing. You know, I've been building this brand and this reputation as a, as a sports writer who could, with range, who could write on the field, off the field, et cetera. When Morgan did move to the business department, he found himself with a better set of bosses and they gave him a lot more autonomy. He began working on what would eventually sort of become his journalistic brand, which was a combination of sports and business. This went well and he had a series going for a while, but eventually that ended and he began to think that he should move fully back into sports. So he reached out and initially the request was approved. Until one senior manager called me into his office like in this sidebar meeting and said, I'm, you're not going back to sports. And I'm paraphrasing here, but one of the things he said to me was, uh, no company lets employees dictate what their job's going to be. This is a weird statement. You know, I kind of, I don't think I'm an exception here. Maybe I'm a little bit progressive as a manager in the sense of thinking that, hey, what are people uniquely talented in? What do they enjoy doing? Let's get them doing more of that, certainly uh, within the scope of our organization and what we have room for. So the idea of a boss going, you're not the boss of me, I'm the boss of you, feels a little bit regressive. Like you wouldn't tell Cam Newton that he has to uh, play two seasons at offensive guard to earn the opportunity to play quarterback. He wouldn't say that to Jose Bautista. Jose Bautista, you know, it took him a while to find a position, but he was a really good right fielder. So you just let him play there. And you don't tell him he has to play catcher for 80 games a year for the right to play right field and for the right to hit the baseball. You just put him in a position where you know he can succeed and he knows he can succeed. Um, <laughs> That didn't go well. That turned into a big fight with that senior editor. But, you know, a few weeks later, I wound up moving to sports, but he had to act like it was his idea. The point is, there are always times in people I was dealing with that, like, they had a different vision than what I had. But I always knew, like, the thing I thought I should be doing was never that outrageous. Like, I never said, put me in charge of the whole company. I said, these are my skills. Here's how my skills match with what you need. Uh, let's make this match and make it work. And again, where we had managers who knew how to manage then things would go well. I just found like within the newspaper industry, it's got more and more difficult, you know, because it's a shrinking industry. And a lot of the companies, if you're not the New York Times or the Washington Post, or maybe the Wall Street Journal, you're shrinking, you're in survival mode. Uh, so the other thing that was happening with like at the Toronto Star, almost every year they would buy people out. And I'm kind of rambling here, but it's what you get when you ask a super open-ended question. He's still hammering me on that. But you know what? Sometimes broad is good. 
because at this point, Morgan begins to tell me about the frustrations he was feeling. He felt like he should have been a senior columnist at this point, and his colleagues agreed. I don't think there was really a question of ability here, but he was not getting that same support from management. He described his experience here as being stuck under a glass ceiling. And, you know, this is a phrase we usually hear associated with women. So I wanted to ask him to tease that out a little bit. So I could see the next level of my career, like where I deserve to be. I could see it. I just couldn't get there. The opportunity structure. So like the glass ceiling can exist for almost anyone. It just happens to exist much more frequently for people of color uh, across gender lines and for women across color lines, right? Yeah, so there are white guys, I'm sure, that have bumped up against the glass ceiling, but it just doesn't happen. It happens much more frequently to the rest of us. The phrasing we landed on was statistical distribution. It's not a binary thing. It's just a trend you see when you speak to enough women and people of color. So Morgan made a decision. He knew that buyouts happened every year as the Toronto Star downsized staff, and he decided that he would wait. If they offered him the equivalent of a year's salary, he would take it and bounce. 2019 came around because it's, you know, it's 17, 18, there's buyout offers. 2019 came around. I went to HR. I said, hey, here's how long I've been at the company. If I take the buyout, what will it be? They sent me back the note saying 54 weeks. I said to my wife, hey, they'll give me 54 weeks pay if I leave. I got stuff I want to do. She's like, let's do it. So then that's what I did. Um, so like a lot of it for me was like just letting go of the idea that I was going to get what I thought justice was within the company, right? That I was going to force them to see value in me. That if I worked hard enough and did enough and showed enough of my skill set that somebody would value. Because sometimes people aren't just going to value you and that's just what it is. But I knew what, what I was doing had value, if not to the company I was at, to, then to some other company. And so then that was how I decided to leave. And, and that's, you know, to answer your question, how I was able to like align what I was doing with what I wanted to do and what I thought I should be doing. This distinction is so important. Morgan told me about a number of times where he was paid really well to do work that he was good at, but did not feel like it was the work that he really should be doing. And I think back to advice from a mentor of mine who let me know, you know, as I was saying before, we've got stuff that we are energized by and good at, and we want to spend as much time as we can professionally. And, and often we need to, you know, what I have done is bootstrap my way into doing that kind of stuff. But there's also stuff that you're good at, but are not energized by. It's kind of fatiguing. And that's the stuff we really have to watch out for because this is the domain that a lot of people spend the majority of their professional lives in. And it's not bad, but it's not yet great. But people knew, and there were enough of them floating around that they decided, you know, if Morgan ever hits the free agent market, and when he did, which was basically uh, what happened and how I wound up kind of doing what I'm doing, which is what I thought I would be doing if you had asked me 23 years ago, but I just didn't think it, it would be here like this. When is it ever? I have no idea. But Morgan began to think about 
what he really wanted his professional life to be and, and now unconstrained by his bosses at the Toronto Star. And he began to think about writing a book. He's going to lay down the timeline here. And so this is literally what happened. <laughs> this is the actual timeline. The night I left the star, you know, I did my little Twitter thread explaining that I was leaving the star uh, and the reasons I was leaving, you know, to work on other things, blah, blah, blah. And I was in the middle of, in the middle of that thread, I started getting DMs. And this is what I was saying in my previous answer about like other people seeing, like seeing value in what you do, even if like, you know, and even if your company doesn't, and, that, and that's the, the, I mean, I'm lucky in that the, the industry is open and we can all see each other's finished product, right? You know, if I was in a more closed industry, it would be tougher. But like editors, they, over the years, they get to know my name, they get to know my work. Um, people that I've worked with uh, who knew my work was good, they wind up at other places, so they know. So I'm tweeting out this thread of tweets about, this is my last night at the Star, I'm going to move on. Uh, <laughs> And literally, like, in the middle of that thread, I get this DM from Scott Sellers. Say, hey, are you interested in writing a book? I'm like, very. Now you're going to find out who Scott Sellers is in a second. But first, his Twitter avatar. But the thing was, his Twitter avatar was is not a picture of him. It's a picture of, like, a gorilla, I think, in a New York Islanders jersey. <laughs> so he's like, okay, so we exchanged email addresses. And then when he emailed me, like, he was emailing, he was super familiar, like, he knew me. I was like, why is this guy emailing me like we know each other? Because I'm still looking at the the gorilla in the Islanders jersey avatar. So we set up a meeting down at uh, Penguin Random House. This was right before the pandemic, around Valentine's Day 2020. Then I go down there, then I see him, and I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> Scott from the gym. And so we go down, we get a coffee. He's like, all right, tell me your idea. I asked him, I'm like, have you ever heard of What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker by Damon Young? And he's like, yes. So that one had come out probably 2018 or 19. And I was like, and you know Boy Wonders by Cahill Kelly? He's like, of course I know Boy Wonders by Cahill Kelly. I commissioned Boy Wonders by Cahill Kelly. It's like, perfect. Cahill was a good friend of mine at the star. Uh, and now he's the lead columnist at the Globe and Mail. And so I said, well, the book I'm thinking of kind of splits the difference between Boy Wonders and What Doesn't Kill You, make you Makes You Blacker. So it's a memoir in essays in chapters, but like if you take all the chapters together, it forms a fairly coherent narrative, but you can take any chapter out of it and just read the story and there's a beginning, middle, end context. So it's like, perfect. Do you think you have a, a, a proposal to me in a month? I was like, sure. <laughs> and so, well, yeah, like I had to scramble because it was right in the middle of that, you know, that first state of emergency went out and, you know, stores started closing. Everybody just wound up in the house. <laughs> <laughs> right? So I had this house full of people, which I hadn't counted on <laughs> when I set out on this journey. So at this point, Morgan puts together a book proposal. He sends it to Scott Sellers, who we'll get to. Scott tells him to get a good agent. So he does. Penguin Random House, a major publisher, makes an offer. Morgan's agent says, hey, you can do better. So they do. He gets a much better offer. And he sits down to get to work. You don't think about writing a book. So from handing in the proposal, from handing in the manuscript, it was two years. But honestly, if I had just had time to treat it like a nine to five job, I could have done it probably in three months. Okay, yeah, but 
Who's Scott Sellers? So for people that need background, uh, Scott Sellers, who is the head of marketing at Penguin Random House, also trains at Jeff's Gym, uh, Bang Fitness in downtown Toronto. So that was where I first came across Scott, which is where the emails came from and why he was emailing me like he knew me. And I couldn't understand why, because all I could picture was the gorilla in the Islanders jersey. And then when I saw him, I was like, oh, yeah, you are not a gorilla. You're Scott Sellers. All right. He's not a gorilla at all. He's a human man. He's actually a lovely guy. Um, I think I left this clip in while we wanted to explain who he was. I think it kind of plugs the gym. Is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. I'm leaving it in there. Um, But the other thing about this is I love how our membership over the years has wound up being so diverse and we have all these talented people here. And whenever cross-pollination happens like this, I think it's pretty cool. And hopefully the next draft, I can just like put the word out to everyone around me that this is what I'm doing. Leave me alone. Give me eight weeks and then go from there. I remembered when Morgan first started posting about his book deal, he got a few haters on Twitter, people who seemed jealous uh, of the opportunity or didn't think it was deserved. I asked Morgan about it. He really didn't seem to remember it at all, which is, I think, exactly what a person who hates on social media deserves, which is to not be remembered at all. But it did get him to segue into some of his experiences as a reporter. Especially as a sports writer, you get them like, I don't know if people who cover crime get haters. But when you're a sports writer, because there's so many people who are just would love to do what you're doing for a living, but they're not. And they have opinions and they think your job is just about having opinions. And like, I have opinions. How come he's getting paid and I'm not? So you just run into those people. They're bitter and they see you, especially in the last 20 years with the uh, pardon, the interruptionization of sports media. Like people think as a sports writer, your job is just to go out places and argue. And so you're always going to get those people because no matter how much you know, there's always some reader that thinks they know more than you. Uh, Especially if you write about like a niche sport like boxing or track and field because so many big publications will put big name writers on big assignments in those sports, but those people don't really know those sports. So like the audience just gets used to big publications putting... uh, people on these sports that don't know them. So they just get used to knowing more about the sport than the person from the Times or the Star or whatever. So but then so when they see my byline in a boxing story, the first thing they think is, oh, here's this guy from this big paper. He doesn't know about boxing because he doesn't watch the fights like I do. No, I watch the fights like you do. I would say he does more than that because Morgan's kind of an encyclopedia of of sports history and he's told me some amazing tales. Uh, Marvin Hagler versus Sugar Ray uh, comes to mind as an incredible behind-the-scenes story. So see if you can find that work from Morgan. It's pretty cool. It's also worth mentioning that Morgan is married to Perdita Felician, who's a track legend, Olympic hurdler, and now works in sports broadcasting. So this isn't incidental. He really lives this stuff. But as we got back onto the topic of the book, I started to get curious about cultural differences or differences in parenting styles and spanking of all things came up. There's a lot of times like when my daughter just goes off and off and off, like when she's acting, not just out of control, but just, but like misbehaving where she wants to try to hit people and stuff. I'm like, ooh, girl, you're lucky we don't spank. 
<laughs> Lucky we don't spank. She's acting up at my mom's house the other day. I had to warn her. I was like, listen, mom and daddy don't spank. Grandma Carol spanks. Now, I don't know if this is going to get me any angry emails. I'm certainly not advocating for spanking. It's just a, uh, it, it is a generational difference. We're just in different times now. And so like the stuff our parents did to us, like to me was not abuse. But like it wouldn't go over in a broader audience the same way. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like my mom used to hit us with a wooden spoon. <laughs> right? Which, whatever, I can laugh about it now. And I don't, that was not abuse. Guys, like anyone that's listening is like, oh, your mom abused you. No, she didn't. She just hit us with a wooden spoon or with a wooden paddle. Um, but yeah, I, now my daughter can't go to daycare and be like, daddy hit me with a wooden spoon because then the cops would be at my house, right? Or like our dad used to hit us with a rolled up newspaper, which was fun. Well, it was actually, the that was ideal because it didn't hurt at all, but it just made so much noise. It scared you into stop Because my dad knew what he was doing, right? Now, like you talk about my dad, like he was abused, like, you can read about it in the book, like his mom especially used to hit him with all kinds of shit. Like what we would now call weapons, like she used to hit him with all kinds of shit. So he knew better than to do that to his kids. He was like, oh, how can I scare them? That actually hurt. Aha, there's rolled up newspaper across the bum. Boom. It doesn't hurt at all, but you're so scared of the sound, you stop misbehaving. So I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Spanking was the first thing that came to mind. I wanted to know about the impact Morgan thought that sports had on him growing up. He was a sprinter, among other things. It's definitely been part of his career, but I wanted to know how it was part of his thought process and how he... Because like playing sports, what playing sports did for me was it led to more sports. So like football led to track. And what I liked about track was that you know, like my tra- I ran in high school. I didn't run in university. We didn't have a team. But uh, even like as a division one track athlete, I would have been whatever, lucky to make the semifinal anywhere. You know what I mean? Like I was fast, like faster than most of the people listening to the show. But so like a, a world-class sprinter, I'm not fast. Like my wife, who Jeff referred to pretty to Felicia, she's like a, uh, you know, multiple time world champion, multiple time world silver medalist, 10 time Canadian champion, all this stuff. So when we met and she was asking about high school track, I was like, yeah. She's like, what's your fastest time? Like in the 100. I was like, uh, hand time, I ran 10.7. She's like, that's it? Right? Like to most civilians in the world, you're like, yo, 10.7, man, you were moving. You know, and I remember that day, like I was moving. You know, I've some really fast people beat me, but I beat some fast people. But like in her world where people run 9.8, like, okay, grandpa, <laughs> 9.7 whatever but what it did do for me though was uh you know introduce me to some people from outside my school and this got me around like a peer group who exerted i guess the the best phrase like like a positive peer pressure you know because <laughs> like the friends i made in track were a little older than me like mace freeman uh who runs push performance in toronto really good friend of mine uh, andre batson uh who played a little in the cfl set all the records at york university so Mace was a year older than me. Andre was a year older than him. So we each had a guy to look up to, basically, in terms of what we needed to do sports-wise, academically, socially, whatever. Um, and that really helped. Because my friends at school were cool, but they were a different type. Not, yeah, a little bit different type of friend. But like getting into track and field just introduced me to people who like 
weren't afraid to like set goals and achieve them, set really high goals and try to achieve them. Even if you don't achieve them, you achieve something big along the way like that. And so that was a big influence on me too. And so like, you know, and the people around me, um, like the, <laughs> the lessons I absorbed from them, I wouldn't be able to absorb till later. Like as a grown up, when the stuff really makes sense, like as a teenager, when your dad's like, listen, study hard. I was just like you. Uh, I was really smart, but I didn't try hard in school. Now I'm working in a factory, blah, blah, blah. Like that don't really make sense to you. But now like I see where he was coming from and like the kind of regret that a lot of people have when they realize they had potential and just didn't do what they needed to do to fulfill it. I think that all of us at some point come face to face with a vision of ourselves having fully lived up to our potential. And the gap between that version of you and the present version of you, I think is always painful. You're sort of aware of uh, maybe missed opportunities or where we just didn't dig in where we should have. And a lot of times that's, I think, self-doubt. But to me, part of mindfulness is just this sort of understanding that in a given moment, you have certain tools, you have abilities, you have things you can bring to bear right this second. And the only moment we live in is right now. So uh, whether or not a lack of potential fulfilled in the past is painful, it's also gone. So it's sort of our job to work with what we've got as we've got it. The only thing that makes you feel worse than not fulfilling your potential is like living the whole rest of your life dwelling on the fact that you didn't fulfill your potential. Like at a certain point, you better learn <laughs> to move on to something else or else you're just going to sit there and mope forever. And you don't want to, you're not, people aren't going to want to be around you. You're not going to want to be around yourself if all you do is mope about the thing you missed, blah, blah, blah. And I think one of the things that leads to that kind of moping is these arbitrary numbers that people put on themselves. Like we have this idea that if you haven't reached success by, and I don't know, insert something with a round number, 30, 35, 40, 45, I don't know what it is, but if you haven't hit it by this time, you're not going to hit it. But there's absolutely nothing to indicate that there's any truth to that. Yeah, it's an arbitrary number, but it's not one that we chose, right? Because everywhere you look, you see top 40 under 40 lists, top 30 under 30 lists, and you're just always getting these messages that like, if you haven't done everything you're going to do, by 35 and <laughs> just settle in for a long, boring, unfulfilling life. And it's not like that at all. Like I said, I turned 40, I was still working in a newspaper, a big newspaper making pretty good money, but again, under, under, underperforming relative to my potential. Um, and so, and even if I blamed the environment, I could be doing more if I wasn't here, but I was still there. So I, I was the one that had to do something because the people running the company weren't necessarily going to make the changes I needed to get the most out of me. So I had to make a change. But I could have said, well, I'm after 40, so I might as well stop. I'm not going to be top 40 under 40. So. You just can't sweat any of that arbitrary stuff. And you know what? When you stop sweating it and you just put your head down and work with what you've got, some pretty amazing things can emerge. So in this case, Morgan's completed another draft of his book. He's waiting on some notes from his editor. And he's kind of realizing that he's got to put his head down and really make time for this. But he's also a busy dad. And so this necessitates a conversation with his family. I think I'm at the point now with 
my family where I can just tell them instead of asking, <laughs> instead of asking for time to finish the book. I think everybody's on the same page now that the book is like a job, it's work, it's not like a hobby. So give me these eight weeks so I can get done what needs getting done. Both Morgan and I have had conversations with our partners around, well, if you really love your work, does that count? Is it really grinding? And <laughs> I brought this up to Morgan. Here's what he said. Because whether or not I like it, there's still a, uh, a payday tied to it. So I need to get it done. True story. So let's get a little detail on what the book is really about. The book is about my life growing up in this family, uh, Black and American in Canada, in a family where the two sides don't get along. The thing about storytelling, right? Every story pivots around a conflict. So when you're African American and in Toronto, it's all kind of that's very fertile ground for conflict because you're black in a in a city where back in those days most of the people were white. You're a black American in a city where even now most of the black people are Caribbean. So like as a member of a minority minority group from a from a lot of different angles there's conflict plus the fact that like my mom's family my dad's family never got along this is like going back to like the 1930s in chicago they didn't get along it's just that my parents happened to get married <laughs> but their parents like my mom's mom and my dad's dad did not get along so that conflict is another one of the that fault line you know runs through almost the entire text so these specific stories from my family, they all will also resonate for a lot of people to, with a lot of people's families for a lot of different reasons, right? Um, you know, there aren't a ton of Black Americans here, but a lot of people can still relate to the immigrant experience in terms of like my family coming to Toronto, like the migrant experience in terms of my family coming from across the South and landing in Chicago. Uh, and just also just like the, the day-to-day -day growing up teenager, Degrassi Jr., high, saved by the bell type stuff that, you know, grew up in the 90s like a lot of us lived, right? It's about, you know, the fall of 1985 when the Chicago Bears are really good. Uh, but my parents' marriage was falling apart. But how Chicago Bears football, like how much, <laughs> all the things that happened in my family that year in and around this weekly schedule, not every week because we didn't live in Chicago, but the schedule of watching the Bears, you know? Uh, so there's that, you know, there's um, Teenage Morgan trying to get laid stories. Uh, <laughs> teenage Morgan getting in a fight in the cafeteria at high school stories, all kinds of stuff. Um, but again, the, the uh, context for it is the fact that we were Black and American in Canada. Uh, and I'm in this family where the two halves don't get along. So I ask about Morgan's experience being American, being Black, being Canadian, what the cultural differences are, what he's noticed. You can fool yourself into thinking there's not a border because when you live in Toronto, like you're still, especially then, because now everyone's always inundated with American media because of the internet. But back then we were still close to get, close enough to get, you know, the network affiliates from Buffalo and radio station from Buffalo like that. So there was still a lot of American pop culture, you know, that floated over the border. But uh, 
you know, as Canadian as my mom became, like my mom was very, as I write in the book, like my mom treated multiculturalism like a newcomer to America and that she wanted to melt into the melting pot, which is a very American way to look at immigration because in Canada, there is no melting pot. There's the cultural mosaic, right? So my dad got here and he took a more Canadian approach, which was to be like, I'm not going to try to be Canadian at all. <laughs> I'm from the South side of Chicago and that's it. I'm not going to, I'm not changing any, um, pronunciations like my mom says schedule instead of schedule but my dad <laughs> like my dad my, my dad died when I was 17 that's in the book too but like him and my uncle you would have thought you talk to my uncle now you would have thought he just moved here yesterday right that's their cultural mosaic whereas my mom was like melting pot I need to try to assimilate oh Victoria Day is a big deal let me get my Canadian flag uh hey do you, does anyone have any serviettes like that <laughs> Are you going on a holiday? Well, mom, serviette, holiday, uh, schedule. My dad, napkin, vacation, schedule, right? Um, but also what you learn as an American or a dual citizen, like a family on both sides of the border and not just on both, like, but with like real deep roots in the U.S., uh, Americans don't know anything about Canada, but they kind of realize they don't know anything about Canada and, and don't care. Whereas Canadians think that because Americans don't know anything about Canada, Canadians think they know stuff about the U.S., which is not necessarily true. There's a lot that Canadians don't know about America, but the difference being you cannot tell a Canadian that they don't know about the U.S. because they think they know everything about the U.S. Like, especially as it, well, as it concerns a lot of things, racism, white nationalism, like economic inequality. Canada is the one pack a day smoker who looks at the next door neighbor who smokes two and a half packs a day and says, my neighbor's got a smoking problem. And your neighbor does have a smoking problem, but so do you. <laughs> this is Canada. And Canada just really benefits from being next to the United States because it can always seem less racist, less unequal, less... It seemed like there's less of a problem with uh, proto-fascist white nationalism here, only because it's much next to a much bigger neighbor that deals with those problems on a much bigger scale. But it doesn't mean they're not happening here. One of the reasons that Canada claims can claim this racial moral high ground versus the United States is that... Historically, there have just been so many fewer Black people here than in the U.S. And the nation is not built on a Black-white color line slash fault line the way the U.S. was, which is very different from saying there's no racism here, but Canadians take that to mean that that's what it is. But the question to ask Canadians is like, any place in Canada where there have been a decent number of black people, have they lived? Have white people treated them? Because there's no black people around to put that to the test, then you can say whatever you want. There's no racism in my town. All right, how many people here are not white? None. Well, then how do you know? But also like, and why is there an all white town, you know, on what used to be Mohawk territory? But you're gonna tell me there's no racism. 
there's no racism that y'all can exercise because you haven't had a chance to put this to the test. Let some black families move here. Uh, let some indigenous families move back. Then we'll see. Um, and so that's where I would draw people's attention is look at the country's history. It's all right there. It's just not necessarily taught widely in schools, but it's, it's all right there. Um, you can ask, like, in a book I recommend to a lot of people is North of the Color Line, which talks about African-Americans coming to Canada after the end of the Civil War. Um, and what you'll find is, you know, white Canadian agents, when they wanted to settle the prairie provinces, would go recruit Americans to come up here and they would give away land. And the fact that the Canadian government was giving away land for free, that's not controversial. People know that that was something the Canadian government did. Recruited Americans, Italians, uh, Ukrainians, right? Uh, but also what happened was a lot of Black Americans found out about this program and would ride the train up to Winnipeg and then settle in Winnipeg, settle in Saskatchewan, settle in Alberta, until the Canadian government figured out that large numbers of Black people <laughs> were taking advantage of this program. Then all of a sudden, here come all these taxes and all these hoops that the that these Black American migrants got to jump through that the other ones didn't have to jump through. What Morgan's saying has got me thinking back to a recording I heard a while ago on one of my favorite podcasts, Seen on Radio, that's S-C-E-N-E. They did a series called Seeing White on Race. And in it, there's a recording of Dina Hayes Green. She's the managing director of the Racial Equity Institute. And she's there with a group and she asks them, who is familiar with affirmative action? And there's, you know, a murmur and hands go up. And she says, great. So everyone here is familiar with it. And can we agree that affirmative action was an executive order legislation that was giving people of color access to institutional opportunities by race and included gender? She wants to know, was that sort of the core component? And again, the crowd agrees. So the next question is, who knows when this was legislated about? Like, you know, the decade is fine. Somebody raises their hand and suggests the 70s. She wants to know, is everybody good with the 70s? The 1970s? Is that the century? Okay. And that's where she brings up John Rolfe, who was America's first tobacco magnate. And because tobacco is such a labor-intensive crop, she talks about an enticement that started back in 1618 to come to the colonies and get some land. And that is the headright system. It was created in England to address the labor shortage in Virginia. Um, it gave people 50 acres of land, sometimes 100. And that was for anyone that was willing to cross the Atlantic Ocean or pay someone to cross the Atlantic Ocean and increase the population of the colonies, okay? Free land. However, as you might guess, not all comers were welcome. This was a white-only system. And I'm a little bit embarrassed as a Canadian to say I know more about the American side of things than the Canadian side, and I think that's much to Morgan's point. Um, but it is a great example of this idea of affirmative action 
cutting both ways. And most people in this generation are only familiar with fairly rudimentary attempts to correct for what was a fundamental movement at the inception of our nations. All of a sudden you see this stream of black Americans moving to Western Canada dry up. And that was 100% to do with race, not 6%, not 50%, not 85% to do with race. That was 100% to do with race. And so you ask yourself, well, Canada's never had a problem with racism because Canada, according to you, because so many places in Canada have not had very many black people, not enough, not a critical mass of black people. Put that to the test. Put your racial tolerance to the test. Why not? Because in a lot of ways... Canadians succeeded in stopping Black people at the border. So they couldn't get into Canada and take advantage of these land giveaways uh, and put down roots and build what we now like to call generational wealth. Black people were systematically stopped from doing that. Morgan's insight on race and the effects of it, culturally, politically, and even in sports, informs all of his work. I've learned a lot from reading his work, from talking to him. And although this is definitely the heaviest episode now that we're getting into it that I've done, I'm glad that we've covered this stuff. I kind of get my bearings at this point and I think to ask Morgan, hey, is there anything else that I should be asking you about that I haven't? And I finally get some journalistic props. That's the best question to ask at the end of an interview. Is there anything else I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? And then that's when the person, if they've been itching to make like this talking point the whole time, this is like, yeah, by the way. What we do wind up talking about is circling back to this idea of potential and getting the work done. In my case, it happens to have been a book like it might be anything else, right? Might be getting into shape might be learning to play piano, whatever it is. Uh, it's not the raw ability that anyone lacks. It's just the schedule and the control over time. But like, if you can find a way just to do the thing consistently, you'd be surprised at how much you can do. Like writing a book seems really intimidating. And it is when you're doing it for 15 minutes a day, three and a half days a week, and the three and a half days a week are consistent. But if you get three hours a day, every day, you can do a lot. If you get eight hours a day every day, you can do even more, right? Uh, and, you know, but a lot of, you know, there's a privilege that goes with that, right? Like I, whatever, like I got a, had a buyout for my job. You get an advance from the book publisher, which, I mean, at my level, it doesn't cover a whole lot. But it's, I mean, it was, a, and that tells you about the book publishing industry. I had, a, I got a good sized advance, but it's still like, I've still already spent more than what the, First part of my advance was just uh, on these little writing retreats. And so by the time the book comes out, you will have spent the advance. Don't worry about that. Don't feel bad. That's normal. So we're talking about process here, but what about raw talent? No, nah, raw, talent, raw, raw talent puts you over the top if, you're, if you do all the other things. In the same way that the other things might put you over the top if you don't have a ton of raw talent. But if you see the person who has raw talent and does all the other things, like that's when you have a LeBron James or a Serena or a Michael Jordan. But even most people in their professions aren't like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? With most people, you have like varying degrees of one or the other. 
But when you have someone who has that raw talent and the habits to get the most out of that raw talent, like that's when you'll get a LeBron. Which is, and, and there's no shame in not being that person because it's, even within people in the NBA, like what are the chances you're born with LeBron's talent? Very slim. And that's within his peer group, right? So don't worry about that. Worry about the rest of this stuff. Because you see all kinds of non-talented people get a, a lot out of moderate amounts of talent. You heard it here first or last or maybe somewhere in the middle. But whatever your level of talent is, the odds are very strong that it's not holding you back. So if you're contemplating a project, if you're contemplating doing something meaningful or of impact, then odds are you just need to find a way to do it. And we can pilot this stuff out. But like Morgan said, it's really tough to make progress 15 minutes at a time here or there. We need enough of a seed of something that I think we can feel like we can tell our family, our friends, our colleagues, I'm going to need this time. I'm going to need this chunk of time to really work and develop. And for what it is worth, I'm here doing this way later in the evening than I should be. I should probably be home sleeping right now, but I wanted to get this episode done and out to you. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Shout out to the Unlearning Network. Big thanks to my guest, Morgan Campbell. If you want to reach out to me to talk about our in-person workshop for ADHD, about coaching, about anything, you can hit me up, G-E-O-F-F at dadstrength.com. See you next time.